Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, healthcare, and workforce development explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Von Tone Quinlevin, CEO of Futuro Health. My guest, Shailen Jotishi, describes himself with a novel title, Public Interest Technologist. His expertise centers on public problem solving where higher education and the workforce meet science, technology, innovation policy, and governance. In his role as senior policy analyst at New America, Shailin has gained influence as a trusted source of compelling research and ideas that can contribute to building a more equitable and efficient future work and learning. He's associated as an advisor or board member with an impressive array of institutions, including the World Economic Forum, MIT, Stanford University, and the United Nations. I'm really looking forward to picking his brain about the interesting and promising experiments he sees emerging in higher education and workforce development. Shailin, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Vaughn. Honored to be with you. Shailen, maybe we can perhaps start with an overview of New America and how your work fits into New America's mission. Sure, absolutely. Uh, so New America is a, a think tank, a media platform, a intellectual venture capital fund. There are many different uh, sort of adjectives you can use to describe New America. But we were founded about 21 years ago by a group of journalists who really wanted to establish a new kind of think-and-do tank, a research organization that is active and engaged in the communities it seeks to serve. New America's mission is to advance uh, new ideas that help us renew the American promise. And within New America, there are a number of different programs that span education to technology to policy, and I found that to be the perfect merriment for me because I touch every single one of those pillars in, in different ways. So uh, for me, New America was a great landing spot. Well, you are always on the leading edge of experiments here. A lot of your work focuses on helping higher ed institutions and their partners align technology and talent development with an eye towards emerging work. Tell us a little bit more about what that looks like and where you see the opportunities. You know, Vaughn, since World War II, U.S. federal investments in R&D at universities and other organizations have just led to an enormous level of social and economic opportunity. Fortified vitamin D, the smartphone, the GPS, internet, the radar, most recently the COVID-19 vaccine. All of this has roots in federally funded R&D the heart of Silicon Valley, contrary to popular belief, the heart of the Boston Quarter, the heart of the Research Triangle Park has been this U.S. investment in R&D. But what we really haven't been doing a lot of thinking about is how we bring the conversation of workforce development upstream to the point of technology development, aligning technology and talent development. But no one has really looked at this as sort of a cogent system. They've looked at it as ingredients as part of a bigger goal, but, but not sort of tactfully. So what I've really been thinking about recently are looking at Manufacturing USA Institutes. So these are about 16 institutes across the country. They're federally funded. They were set up in the Obama administration. And they're responsible for developing new technologies that will revolutionize the frontiers of manufacturing in different uh, sectors. And each of these institutes are also responsible for workforce development. 
many institutes are looking at how the technologies that they're deploying for the benefit of U.S. manufacturing are having workforce implications. And community colleges and research universities alike have a role to fill in preventing a gap from emerging, preventing an issue in which a technology that's been federally funded by the U.S. government uh, is put out into industry and results in a skills gap that the local ecosystem is not prepared to handle. There have been some examples of institutions being innovative in this way. For example, in the photonics space, you have the AIM Academy at the AIM Photonics Institute working with Stonehill College, a private liberal arts college, to develop a non-degree photonics certificate program to train photonics technicians of the future. You have Pima Community College, not necessarily related to a manufacturing institute, but developing an autonomous vehicle certificate program to help meet the demands of Arizona's growing autonomous vehicles industry. The opportunity for institutions to skate where the puck is going, as a lot of us like to say in this space, is enormous now more than ever because we have this increased emphasis on both two years and R&D at the federal level. There are a number of other things I could share, on, but I'll, I'll pause myself there and uh, happy to talk more later in the discussion. Shailen, I actually have experience with one of these uh, federal institutes that you mentioned. The one that is located in Silicon Valley is called NextFlex, and they focus on technology embedded in flexible fabrics. I was actually a judge in a Shark Tank competition that they sponsored where high school students and community college students would pitch business ideas where that technology was deployed. There were some very clever teams, for example. One team uh, proposed that the technology be embedded in baby outfits, in the underarm and in the booties, so that if the baby stops breathing, uh, you would have an early alert. I can just imagine from the audience seeing some of those individuals going on to have PhDs in this area, but also in technician uh, types of roles because they were exposed to NextFlex. So I just love what you're thinking. And um, really, I'm, I'm glad that the country has had those investments. Absolutely. And hope they will continue. Um, absolutely. I just had to share that because you got me all excited. <laughs> And so, Shailene, I want to ask you about learning and employment records, which are known by various names, including interoperable learning record. Why does it matter? And why do we have this idea fomenting at this moment in time? Learner and employment records or interoperable learner records are different names for this. But this movement really got a lot of steam a couple of years ago as the White House's American Workforce Policy Advisory Board began discussing this topic as part of their meetings and produced a report on interoperable learner records. These LERs, for short, is the name that we are now accustomed to, are essentially digital passports where the full breadth of our learning and skills can be brought into one centralized place. It's a comprehensive digital record of all of the skills we've gained through our schooling, through our jobs, through our volunteering, our military service. It includes the employment history or credentials or diplomas we may have picked up on. And the idea is that LERs will help amalgamate all of the different kinds of verifiable skills that we pick up on on our various uh, uh, journeys through our career progression. 
we know that there's a challenge where a student or a worker sometimes struggles to communicate the full breadth of skills that he or she has with what an employer is looking for. And on the employer side of the coin, the employers sometimes can't really get a sense of the full breadth of skills a candidate has based on a cover letter or resume submitted through some form on the internet. LERs are meant to help educational institutions do a better job of deconstructing their credentials and programs into skills and competencies. They're meant to help employers get a better sense of what kinds of skills they're looking to hire for and advance competency-based hiring at scale through sort of a, a digital technology infrastructure. And it helps learners and workers uh, get a better sense of what they know and how they can communicate it out to employers. So this may seem like a very meta sort of pie-in-the-sky idea, and it is nascent, but uh, there's a great deal of momentum underway for LERs. After the White House released its report a couple of years back, the Chamber of Commerce Foundation really took the idea and ran with it and has established this T3 innovation network that is really bringing together a number of different thinkers and doers to do. And what many of us hope is that through LERs, we can move to a system in which we're talking about skills and not proxies for skills, whether it's age or gender or credentials. All of these, you know, in some ways are proxies for skills. So it's an interesting time for LERs. I would imagine that this ties into well with this discussions around portability, especially for adult. I mean, the, the system for transcribing education record is pretty clean and clear for someone from high school going into college. But once you go beyond college, uh, all the experiences gain, all the additional learnings that you pull along the way, that's what matters, I would imagine, with these learning records. Absolutely. We know that uh, there are some groups within the military who are interested in using LERs to capture the breadth of skills our, our veterans gain when they leave service. Um, we all know people in our own personal networks who are just so talented and have skills to do certain jobs, but they may not have traditional markers of proof. They may have not done graphic design work through their jobs, or they may not have a degree in graphic design, but they may have picked up on those skills. Maybe they signed up for Skillshare or Coursera, or they just watch YouTube videos. It's a side hobby. So the exciting opportunity, I think, for LERs, for adult learners in particular, is this ability to deconstruct lived experiences into skills that can be communicated out to employers and educational institutions alike. The deconstruction of lived experience into skills means that skills would have more currency in the future. Tell us more about how you think about that. If we can move to a system in which we have a common narrative, a common ontology for skills that are used across the board, then the language in which we use to communicate education and hiring are more skills-based instead of credentials-based. And that, I think, has a lot of opportunity. I think it has a lot of opportunity for equity. We know that uh, a significant number of jobs are never really posted anywhere. You know, they're just hired through internal searches, through, through networks. Um, networks tend to privilege those with social capital. Networks tend to privilege those with networks. So, you know, a system in which we're really communicating uh, through skills, I think, would allow the equity conversation to advance a lot more substantively because employers will then be able to assess candidates based on 
what they're really looking for, the actual competencies that they need to perform the certain jobs as opposed to proxies for competencies. Oh, well, you know, Shailen went to this institution, so Shailen should be able to do that. Or, you know, Shailen didn't go to Harvard, so maybe he's not really able to do that. We would have less of the qualitative interpretations of someone's skills and get more of the verified piece, which is a very important aspect of LERs. For LERs to work well, there has to be a really concrete mechanism for verifying that the skill Shailen says he has, he actually has. And that's one of the nuts that this community is trying to crack a bit more acutely. Well, thanks for explaining these experiments that are occurring right now. In a past role, you help university leaders across the country advance workforce and economic development initiatives. One interesting idea you offered in a recent article is to have states provide community colleges with revolving loans as a way to fund startup costs for new non-degree programs. Tell us more about that. We have this project called New Models for Career Preparation in which we're looking at how community colleges can design quality non-degree programs that lead to quality jobs. So these are programs that are you know, above the high school diploma, but below the associate's degree. Of course, one key challenge that colleges face in this work is finding the funding to uh, cover the startup costs associated with a number of these programs. Even if you have a really engaged industry partner and they're willing to put a little skin in the game and you have this defined need, there's still going to be the need to fund that program. So one example that we came across recently is this idea of state-based revolving loans in which the state essentially makes some funding available for startup costs for non-degree programs that are meant to be a replenishing fund. Uh, so the institution borrows from the funds at no interest, and that funding is paid back over a set amount of time as students enroll in the program. Now, this model is most suitable for sort of long-term programs that you expect to have in place for a number of years. If you have a program that's meant to be customized training for, say, 200 workers in two years, like at Mesa Community College, they have a fascinating four-credit boot camp. Uh, this strategy may not be so helpful because you'll likely fulfill your program's goals within two years' time, and you may not have the need or timeline to pay back the loan that you borrowed. But let's say you have a more significant development. Let's say Amazon comes to your neighborhood and has a workforce need that they really need to have filled, and you don't have funding available at your institution. Maybe you're a rural institution. Maybe you're not located in an area with lots of financial assets. States making temporary funding available for entrepreneurialism for non-degree programs and new models to career preparation we think is a really exciting opportunity. But it's not the only way that colleges can innovatively finance these programs. We're looking at partnerships with unions. We're looking at partnerships with community-based organizations, faith-based organizations. What is the role of faith-based organizations in non-degree workforce development, whether it's from the financing and fundraising lens, maybe through scholarships or sponsorships, or even just promotion of opportunities, which programs are worth their salt? So when it comes to this question of financing non-degree programs at community colleges, we're really trying to think out of the box. Revolving loans is one tool that we found, but um, we're expecting to find others as we carry on our, our new models project. I like these policy ideas that you're advocating. 
Launching a new program is very risky for a college. So as many ways as we can lower the risk to them, uh, that would help us get the capacity out there. So Shailene, until recently, you were the CEO and publisher of the Journal of Science Policy and Governance, and you also focus on coordinating federal science and innovation policy with workforce policy. What's top of mind for you in the policy space today? Yes, I really enjoyed my eight years with the Journal of Science Policy and Governance. And, you know, I think my role with the journal as an academic and a practitioner in this space really sort of painted an interesting lens on these issues. One thing that's really top of mind for me is how we fund science and workforce development programs in the United States and how those two funding pots and strategies are connected to one another. There are a number of really exciting developments. We have the director of the National Science Foundation testifying before the House and Senate on the White House's funding increases for the National Science Foundation for R&D. We also have a, a hearing on the Endless Frontier Act, which has been proposed by Senator Schumer and Senator Young, which proposes to transform the National Science Foundation into a National Science and Technology Foundation in which we would have a part of a federal agency that's really substantively looking at propagating new technologies in the United States, technology development. Well, what better opportunity to be thinking about the workforce implications of R&D than if we're focusing on technology development. So, you know, now more than ever, I think we have an enormous opportunity to build back better truly by aligning science and workforce policy. And there are legislative actions, there's executive level actions, and there's a lot of state level innovation happening all across the country through tech-based economic development organizations, through university industry partnerships, through community college industry partnerships. So if it's one thing that's really exciting me about this question and my interloping background, it's just the moment we're in. We've emerged from a really, really challenging time. But there was another time in which the country emerged from an enormous challenge by aligning its workforce and science policy. It was World War II when the GI Bill was put in place, when Vannevar Bush introduced Endless Frontier and, you know, the Office of Science and Research Development was established. There was a big movement for U.S. policy in terms of economic development. And in some ways, I think we can look at the pandemic as a similar development. We really do have an opportunity to build back better here. So um, I'm looking forward to just carrying on the discussion with our space. Technology is indeed morphing work and jobs and you have been thinking about job quality. When it comes to job quality, what should leaders in our audience be thinking about, Shailene? Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't give a plug for a recording of a, a session that the OECD hosted a couple of weeks back, which I moderated. And the topic was advancing job quality and equity in the context of workplace automation and augmentation. So really dot connecting the impact of technologies on the workplace with our sort of job quality conversation. And we had Maureen Conway from the Aspen Institute and uh, Leticia Gasca from Fathom AI and Jeremiah Sadams-Prossel from Oxford. We had a fantastic discussion. One thing that really I came away with is proactiveness is really important. 
you know, there's been a lot of debate about automation over these past several years, hemming and hawing about, oh, it's not going to destroy any jobs. Oh, it's going to destroy all of our jobs. Oh, we need to stop talking about automation destroying all of our jobs. And we need a new sort of paradigm shift for economic structures. Well, it could be all of those things. But the fact of the matter is, if you look at the evidence, what we have is some jobs being destroyed, some jobs being created, and a lot of jobs being changed. And it's really in the augmentation space that I think there's a lot of area of opportunity. In terms of policy recommendations, we really need to be mindful of social safety nets in the country. A lot of social safety nets are tied to employment. You lose your job, what happens to your health insurance? Well... So thinking about uh, the gig economy and the proliferation of contract-based work, whether you're an Uber driver or you're a coder trying to get some projects on Fiverr or you're a data cleaner working in the AI industry, there's an increased growth of contract-based work and we need to be thinking about sort of the policy implications for that. There's one phrase that came out from the session that the OECD hosted that's really top of mind for me, which is that technology doesn't change the workplace. People change the workplace. People choose to do things. A knife can be used to slice a fruit, but it could also be used to poke someone in the arm. Technology is a tool which can be used in the public's interest or against the public's interest. And whether it's in the workplace or in the school grounds or in the hospital, we can all work to use technology in the public interest. That's why I'm a public interest technologist by sort of practice and by, by training. So, Vaughn, there's so many things I could say about job quality and automation augmentation. But if I were to say one thing that sort of encaptures it all, it's that we need to ensure agency for workers, for employers, for states, and for society because technology is not changing anything. People are. And I think this ties back well to our prior discussion about portable learning records, and you've just recently brought up the topic of portable benefits. So many things, in order to give us agencies as the worker or as the individual, will need to be decoupled from employment, given the way the economy is heading. So Shailen, you've been recognized as a World Economic Forum Global Shaper. I'm wondering how you see the next uh, economic trajectory of the U.S. compared to other leading economies over the next several years. Oh, gosh, that's a that's a massive question, Vaughn. Um, I'll share my personal view. You know, I'm, I'm not an economist. I'm not an, an expert in sort of financial systems or or financial paradigms. But I'm actually optimistic of our future. I'm not pessimistic um, when it comes to technology and our changing lives. Again, you know, technology isn't changing anything, right? We are. We choose to get addicted to our cell phones or to be over-reliant on email or to be absorbed in the pinging and buzzing of Twitter and LinkedIn and this and that. I think what we will need in terms of our economic structure is a greater level of emphasis on how more Americans can benefit from the advances in science, technology, and innovation. And I think one vehicle to accomplish that is aligning technology and talent development. We need to get away from this notion that science and tech really only benefit those who are at universities doing research or those who live in these coastal elite areas. You know, there was also mentions of innovation hubs in some of the recent policy 
proposed. And Mark Miro and Rob Atkinson have advocated for these regional innovation hubs that sort of take R&D out of the locus of control of SF and Seattle and Washington, D.C. and New York City and Boston and bring them more into other regional economies where more Americans can benefit from advances and investments, financial investments in R&D. So when I look at paradigm shifts or economic structures or financial movements or anything along those lines, I would say that there needs to be a little bit more of a strategic emphasis on standard of living increases, as well as the sort of macroeconomic GDP enhances that we tend to be focused on in Washington circles anyway, because it's going to matter. It's really going to count. Like I said before, technology is a tool. It can be used in our public interest or it can be used against our interest. And in this day and age, I think technology development is so intertwined with economic development. It's really one and the same in many regions. Uh, we need to be thinking more proactively about how we broaden the pot for others to share in. And so, Shailen, what excites you most within your portfolio? Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's a question that might get me in some trouble, Vaughn. <laughs> um, you know, if there's one thing I really appreciate about New America, it's this emphasis on newness. It's this emphasis on really pushing ourselves to push the envelope and to think about things that haven't been thought about before or to think about things differently or and communicate them differently and, and be responsive to the moment. And that, to me, is really exciting. Um, there's an opportunity, I think, to sort of skate to where the puck is going. And, you know, we have the privilege of opportunity for that. So I'd say my favorite part of my portfolio is sort of this opportunity to focus on very tactical, concrete issues of today, but also look beyond the horizon a little bit and sort of future cast a little bit. Well, let's talk about future casting. I'd like to close by inviting you to go 10 years into our future and look back to the now. What do you think you'll observe about the transitions that we're seeing at this moment in time? Fantastic question. I would like to think that we've built a world that is more enjoyable, more robust, more fulfilled, more engaged. And I'd like to say that we, we made it. We cracked the difficult nuts. Not all of them. There's always going to be some challenges here, there, this, that. But I'd like to think that from 10 years from now, we would have taken the right steps emerging from this global pandemic. I think we have a moment in this new decade that we're in to start fresh when it comes to how we build our economies and build our communities and build our society. Well, thank you very much, Shailen, for being with us today and talking about our own agency in building that better future. Thanks again so much. I'm Vontone Quinlevin with Futuro Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Mm-hmm.